Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And today we bring to you um, really wonderful titles, starting out with our good friend Joyce Goldstein, who is, of course, an iconic American chef. Um, hers is cute, cute. It's a terrific title, Jam Sessions. And anybody who knows Joyce knows that her jams that she makes for other people and her friends and relatives in particular are really special acquisitions in your pantry. <laughs> and she makes it sound so easy. Right, she does. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, well, the next two guy and gal and guy don't make it sound really all that hard either. No, but sure um, they're, they're, cute. they're great titles too. Sourdough School, which is actually um, a, 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 a tutorial on, yeah, a real, on it's a real school making well. bread. Yeah, and it is a real school. Uh, with Vanessa Kimball, and then Ron Harris uh, tells us, he's also English, of course, um, about Root and Leaf. That's another great title. There you go. So so here we go. First three, of all, three with, terrific first, books. First of all, with Joyce. Yeah. Uh, I always love talking to Joyce Goldstein. Um, her latest book, came just at the right time, too. The, uh, as I have a, a, a pear tree that's gotten t- too ambitious and delivered tons of Asian pears in my lap. Um, your book is very cleverly titled A Jam Session and a Fruit-Preserving Handbook. Um, Joyce, it is so um, clear and confident this book that I imagine you've probably been preserving fruit for since the 60s. This is correct. I started putting up preserves in like 1968. Um, as the years have gone by, I've become more and more of a fanatic about this. Now I've trained my daughter-in-law and my granddaughter, <laughs> so everybody is now putting up preserves like mad. Well, you, you know, the... Uh, you, like all of your books, I mean, it's it's obvious that before you were even a cook, you were a historian, because everything is so expanded from just the basic information about preserving. I mean, who knew that rhubarb is native to where? Siberia. Siberia. Isn't that weird? <laughs> now, how did it get to the you? The rhubarb triangle in Yorkshire, my yeah. home county. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Marco Polo. Who knows? <laughs> you never can. You never can tell. I, I, I want to tell you a, a funny, a funny story, Joyce, about about preserving, because uh, my, my stepfather was a was a very fine man, but not but not terribly romantic. So so. One, my mother's birthday is in October, and she had been complaining during her preserving season that, that she didn't have a good pan for boiling the containers. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he gave her a jam pan for her birthday, <laughs> and she hit him with it. <laughs> so, so we have. Well, a, that's one way to solve the problem. <laughs> so, so, so we have this saying in my family: if you give something. If you give somebody something that is purposeful but not very attractive, it's called a jam pan. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you go through just every step of this. I think most people lack confidence and they're afraid of poisoning somebody. Well, I think when you read some of the other preserving books, it's watch out, watch out, watch out. <laughs> and it sort of takes all the joy out of it because it's really not that complicated if you're putting up 
fruits that have enough acidity, and even if something doesn't have enough acidity, you can add a little citric acid. And I think in the old days, they didn't have you water bath the preserves. So some of them sealed and some of them didn't. Now, I think putting everything in a water bath is a guarantee that the jars will seal. That's important. My mother was a big preserver, and I remember, um, well, I remember a stage where we had the the shelf along the steps to the basement lined with tomatoes put up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... um, Every so often, one of them would explode. <laughs> not good. Not good. Well you, uh, well, you know not to eat that one. Yeah, well, you do. This is true, but better <laughs> better not to have to deal with it at all. Yeah, but I, I happen to have a lot of the preserving equipment you recommend because um, of all the preserving she did, including yeah. the tongs and all that stuff, because she ended up, of course, with this water bath thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. But... Um, I mean, not everything you point out in your book that it's not an absolute guarantee that if you follow all the rules, it'll come out like you expect. Well, I think the thing is, there's always room for error. If you don't put in enough sugar, it doesn't preserve properly. If you don't cook it to the right temperature and then seal it properly. I mean, a lot of people forget to wipe the edges of their jars, and yeah, then the that doesn't seal. Yeah, I, so, I like that, by the way. I, I thought that was very important for you to mention, because I don't know that I I left them dirty, but I don't think that was at the forefront of my thinking. But it's important, because it then the lids may not seal, and then you have the exploding jar, which you certainly do not want. No. Uh, so I, I think I give everybody pretty safe instructions, but I also want them to taste the food and, you know, adjust the flavors to their palate. I tend to like things a little more tart. I always add a little more lemon because I think it brings up the sweetness of the fruit. I think most commercial jams are just way too sweet. That's all you taste yeah, me sugar. Too. So. so, I mean, that's one of the reasons you suggest that you should actually preserve your own fruit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, you you got some really informing in, important information out there. Like, I don't know how many people really know um, the difference between chutneys and conserves and butters and jam and jelly. Um, You do a great job of explaining all the differences with that. Well, I think, you know, people get confused when they hear something is a preserve or a conserve. With a conserve, you've added something like raisins or nuts where there's another ingredient that's been put in there. But sometimes if you're putting up, say, strawberries and you don't mash them so they're not really a jam, they're a preserve because mm-hmm. you're, you're keeping them whole. So whenever I have large pieces of fruit or, you know, slices of lemon or something, I call that a preserve. A jam is when everything gets sort of smushed up and the texture is less important. Jellies, of course, you know what they look yeah, like. I'm with you. I'm not crazy about jellies. No, I, I well, I don't use them very often. And um, I think for things like chutneys and mustardas, um, chutneys have a long tradition with vinegar, sugar, and a lot of intense spices. And the mustarda is really Italian, and I've tried to get as close to the flavoring of the Italian mustarda di frutta 
that was served with, you know, cold meats and cheeses and things like that. Yeah, I love mustarda. Is, is that why it's called mustarda? I was, yeah. Well, you could explain it, Joyce. You explain well, the mustarda originally in in Italy, it was the condiment that was served with bolito misto. You know, when the big cart comes around with all that meat, right. and then they give you usually a green sauce, a red sauce. And then a mustarda de fruta, which is big hunks of fruit preserved in a syrup that has a mustard oil, all your decenna. But you can't get it in this You country. can't get it here. If, if you go to Italy and you walk into a pharmacy, you can buy it over the counter. I mean, it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. But um, our country has bans against it because I don't know what they think people are going to do with it. Drink it in quantity. It's terribly <laughs> unpleasant. Um we we tend to ban certain things that maybe don't need to be banned. And so to get that sort of heat, intense heat, but also pungency, I work with mustard powders, vinegars, and cayenne to, to get as close to the Italian mustarda flavor. You have a recipe for what you use, right, in here? Don't you, have a, you have a, a, a recipe for how you put together the flavor of, of that oleo yeah, they all your decentipede, yeah. right? And that's and that's with mustard and vinegar. You know, yeah. the comb is mustard powder and vinegar and a little heat from hot pepper. Yeah, the that, other thing that, I liked is you you make your own apple pectin. Well, I do. I don't use any commercial pectin, and um, I always have about a dozen jars of apple pectin down in my jam cellar in case something is not setting up the way it should. Like sometimes cherries need a little boost. And um, so you, I just throw in one of my jars of apple pectin, and sure enough, there it is. Works. Now, how do you find the time to do this? <laughs> well, I do it on the weekend. I go to the farmer's market at about 7 in the morning on okay. Saturday, and then I come home with my loot, <laughs> and then usually Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, I put up a batch of preserves. Sometimes I go into Monday because I like to use it when I've just gotten it at the market. And um, I give them as gifts, you know, to people. I feed my family and friends. I use it at the table all the time. Like if you just made a simple lamb chop, well, that Moroccan tomato conserve is great. Or even the Turkish one with the tomatoes and poblanos. I just made that this week. And, um, you know, a simple chicken breast, which is the most boring thing in the world. Well, you put a chutney on it or one of your wonderful, you know, conserves, you've got something to eat. Now, I think an important chapter um, here, again, I'm referring to the fact that you're so confident. I know you've been doing this for years, but you go through these uh, preserving techniques and pointers and and get to the heart of some of the things to really look out for. I like uh, um, you. You macerate. You tend to macerate, right? I like to macerate the fruit because then I don't have to add additional liquid. Uh, if you put the fruit with sugar and a little lemon and let it sit overnight, when you come in in the morning, it already has enough liquid for you to make the preserve, and then you don't have to add water or some sort of juice. See, I've never done this with, you, you do talk, it with you, uh, lemons, you talk, too. You talk about I, I throw a little lemon in there. I, I throw a little lemon in everything, honey. That's yeah, I do, too. <laughs> I, I buy them and freeze them whole, uh, you know, wash them and freeze them yeah. whole, and then I put them in the microwave for 20 seconds, and it's fresh lemon. Yeah, so that's good. It's um, good. I, have, I always have tons of lemons. 
Well, yeah, look where you live, California. California. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I also like that you suggest not using, because I was always so envious of um, these recipes for Meyer lemons, preserved Meyer lemons. You say that their skin's too thin to use. Well, they're too thin for preserved lemon because when you use preserved lemon, what you're really using is the peel, the outer part. And with Meyer lemons, the peel is so thin that you're not getting anything out of it. And I know a lot of people have put them up, and then after four or five months, they start to disintegrate because there's not enough peel. That's so you much. want the Eurekas or the Lisbon lemons or the Feminello lemons that have a thicker peel. Or, or ones you steal from your neighbor's garden, whatever kind that of That too, <laughs> that too. I have a friend with a fabulous tree, and I get her lemons, and they're gorgeous. They don't have any seeds, and they have this beautiful wow. peel. Well, you know, I, I was about to say, um, you know, all these books have acknowledgments. Your acknowledgments are, are the most fun to read of anything. I'm, it's like reading your book because it tells your acknowledgments tell the story of of your person, your preserving history. Well, it is. I mean, I have to thank all my farmers, you oh, know, yeah. which is very important. Yeah. And uh, you know, I thank people who have helped me along the way and people who. Eat things, you know, give me a feedback. On. That was good. Yeah. So you have three grandchildren now, huh? I do. Cool. Great. We have two. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, now, what, what's your rascally son Evan up to? Uh, well, he is uh, doing his usual teaching and talking about wine. Great, great. And he has a new product on India Gogo, which is a wine tasting kit for people, blind tasting, where you do the tasting and then you check in with Evan or one of the other sommeliers to see how you're doing. Oh, nice. And, yeah, it's it's on his website. I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we just donated we got a a, a whiskey tasting kit from somebody oh, from that'd Peugeot. Be fun. <laughs> Peugeot. Some Peugeot. yeah it's beautiful car, car not included very expensive <laughs> well this looks like a really good thing you can sign up for one session or a series of sessions i think it'll be great for people opening restaurants and and hotels because it's a great way to train staff and for people who are interested in wine and improving their tasting skills, it'd be very beneficial for them as well. You have a section here on skimming. I can, to this day, I can envision my grandmother skimming. <laughs> well, you don't want all those white bubbles sitting on the top of your jar. No, but I still remember seeing her do this. It's amazing. Why it impressed me, I have no idea. So, and then you you explain what this plate test is. Well, that's important, too, because that way you know whether your jam is there. And I always keep about four or five small plates in my freezer, and as I progress with the jam, I drop them on the plate and tilt the plate up. And if it runs like mad, I know I'm not there yet, and then I get a little closer, and all of a sudden it seems just perfect. It doesn't run very much, and it's still a little movable, and that's when I put it up. Now, I, th- I think that um, the thing people are most in the dark about is the sort of mysterious, and it's not really, process of sterilizing. Now, you, you go into that in details. Well, yeah, there are lots of different ways to do it. You can, you can do it in the dishwasher because they all get past 180 degrees. You can wash the jars and put them in an oven for about 20 minutes. Or when you have your water bath pots on the stove, you can just drop the jars 
in the water bath and process them for 10 minutes and then drain them and fill them. So there are a number of ways of doing it. Or you, yeah. can, or you can get your husband to give you a jam pan. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <coughs> I am. I, I put my jars through the dishwasher, but I'm never sure about how long it should be between when I take them out of the dishwasher and when I use them to fill well, them. Well, you want the jars to be hot or warm. So if you've done them in the dishwasher, but they've cooled off, yeah. you can put them in a low oven just for about 5, 10 minutes. Because I find that if the jars are hot and the lids are hot and the preserve is hot, it feels like a dream. Okay. <laughs> now, the other thing is, what is the difference between the the jar with the uh, lid and the, the screw-on thing? Or the, the ones that, I mean, I used to use this. It was a perfect size for me. Uh, it was, you know, a, a glass jar with a glass lid and then that metal clamp-on thing. I always have a rubber gasket. I don't use those um, because I do so many. And I think that the Kerr and ball jars are now so improved. I like to use the Kerr wide mouth 8-ounce jars. Those okay. are my favorite. And I've never had a problem with them. The other ones, you know, if the gasket's a little worn, it's also expensive to get a whole bunch of those jars. Yeah, well, I just had them in, in the house. But preserved lemons with all that salt, it just ate up the mess. Oh, no, well, for preserved lemons, you're not water bathing them. They don't have to seal, you see. They're in a jar. You certainly can use those glass containers But for the that. salt eats up the metal thing that, you know, the, whatever. Yeah, I just, I just put them in a, in a large, like a pint canning jar. And um, the lids will get a little corroded, yeah, from the yeah. lemon juice. Yeah, because I bought a, a nice replacement, and I had to throw out the whole batch because I've never seen anything so corroded oh, enough in my whole life. Yeah. Okay, now in addition to all these techniques and so forth, that kind of information, um, then you have the, the yummy, yummy recipes, and you organize it by seasons. Um, you seem to be really... Uh, very fond of strawberries, huh? Well, I like strawberries. I mean, it's the most popular jam in the world. And so if you've made a big batch and you give somebody a jar of strawberry jam, they will love you forever. Um, I do an awful lot with apricots. Um, I do a number of things with plums. Plums make some of the most interesting sauces. I've never done plums. I mean, I, well, the, the red flesh plums are wonderful. And I think if you go into the plum section, you will find just a, a number of incredible things that you can do with plums. I do one with plum and orange and black pepper. That's a wonderful condiment to have with cheese, a plum and ginger jam, um, I, a plum sauce with pomegranate. That's just incredible. Yeah, I'm just looking at that one with the, yeah, yeah, that's good. You use, you, you get really creative, which is another thing. I'm not so sure people. Well, I'm a chef. That's what yeah. I do. Right. <laughs> I mean, you have here the strawberry preserves with black pepper pomegranate, which sounds... That's delicious, by yeah, the way. I'm looking at it. That it one. looks wonderful. Um, yeah. and, and we talked about rhubarb. Of course, we're fond of rhubarb because Peter originates from the rhubarb triangle. Uh, I, uh -huh. I, I was not actually born inside the, the rhubarb triangle. Well, I hope you will but, make but, one but of the was, rhubarb preserves. But, but, it, but it was close. Yeah, I, I like, Joyce, what you said about apricots because I've noticed that they've gone downhill also. 
Yeah, you have to get organic apricots from a farmer. Most commercial apricots are like orange cotton balls. I mean, they're just really sad. They are. And then, I mean, I I read a whole book about this, what's it called, a plum cot? Oh, the plum cots, yeah. Plum cots are pluots. Pluots. There are also apriums. There are many, many crossovers between the plum and the apricot. And um, the pluots, I think, are the ones that have the biggest flavor. They're the ones that I think we'll see for a much longer time. Now, um, you have, nobody would ever even think of, of doing carrots this way. Um, ah, you have well, Persian uh, carrot jam. Well, the reason I I have that jam is I went to Iran about three years ago, and every morning on the breakfast table they would have this wonderful flatbread, something like a clotted cream, and jars of both rose preserves and carrot jam. And I was fascinated by the carrot jam. This was a little too sweet for me, so when I came home I played with it till I... I got it where I like it now, and um, it's it's delicious. But it always needs something slightly creamy underneath it—a little mascarpone or cream cheese or something—and so the texture of the carrot and that cream is just sensational. Now, wow! Now it's all, it's also great if you spice it up a little bit. Oh yeah! Because <laughs> I, I I bought a a, 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 fairly, a fairly large jar of carrot pickle. Well, pickles are different from the sweet preserve. No, yeah. it's just it's just it's just funny because <laughs> it, <laughs> it lasted la- fifteen it, years. <laughs> it, it lasted it lasted so long. I think we only threw it out when we bought a new refrigerator. <laughs> ah, you never ate them. Oh yeah, oh, I, Peter I, ate I, it all the time. I I got it. It, was, it was terrific. <laughs> <laughs> it's it certainly was it certainly was safe because there was enough spice in it. <laughs> Um, the the other thing that's interesting here is um, that you, I mean we know we really know that eggplant is a fruit, but nobody really thinks of it as as a um, a fruit. And you have all these recipes for for eggplant. Well, yes, because um, you know originally when eggplant was introduced to the Mediterranean from India, they know it was a fruit, and they used to sprinkle it with honey or sugar and fry it. You know. And um, there are Morocco and Lebanon still make wonderful eggplant preserves, and I thought I'd throw a couple in there to show people, hey, if you have a big crop of eggplant, yeah, go for it. I'd like that. I think, you know, I mean, I'm fond of eggplant, uh, although it's nightshade, which you know people with arthritis are not supposed to eat for some reason. I ignore that. I don't even know if this is true about nightshades, by yeah, the way. But. I don't. I don't pay attention to it. <laughs> I mean, I love tomatoes. And yes, well, I mean, tomatoes, eggplant, peppers. Yes, tomatoes, and they're all nightshades. Nightshades, yeah. and, you know, the, think how many countries that's the basis of their vegetable diet. Uh-huh. Tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, my God. After two, you name it, everything. So uh, you you have a green tomato chutney, and I'm sure Peter will... Pipe up about my mother's garlic green tomato. She made a batch, and there, there was so much. There was so much of something in it. I and forget garlic. what it was. <laughs> it, it, was it was to, it was totally inedible, and she had worked so hard <laughs> to produce this. And well, that's too bad. It came, it came out of the freezer. You, I mean, I'm I'm a spicy eater, but, but this, this was totally impossible. Well. 
We need a good recipe. There's a good that, one here. A, oh, there is. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yes. good. Yeah, and you even do squashes, pumpkin butter. Uh, tell us about butters. Well, butters are sort of an American thing. And what's nice about butters is that you can finish them off in the oven, and they don't need a lot of sugar because they don't have to set up as a jam. So if for people that say, oh, I don't want it to be too sweet, apple butter, pear butter, pumpkin butter, all of those, you make them, but you don't have to use a ton of sugar, and then you put them in a sort of flat pan in the oven, low temperature, and then stir them every once in a while, and they thicken up, they lose moisture, and, you know, people love them on toast and pancakes and things like that. Well, Joyce, I think this book really expands our understanding of and our appreciation of, of what you can do with preserving fruits. I hope people have fun with it. I've yeah. been getting lots of emails from people who've been making recipes and writing me, which is very gratifying. Okay. I've written so many cookbooks, and this is the first one where preservers are special people, is what I've discovered, uh-huh. and they all want to talk to you about what they're making. Oh, really? Yeah. How funny. Yeah. So um, what are you working on next? Well, I'm not sure. I was actually playing with the idea of a book about nightshades because oh, really? they're so delicious. Or a book for beginners now called Practical Pantry of what to have in your pantry and how to get as many meals out of it as possible by creative combinations. I'm just sort of playing with the, the notions right now, oh, talking cool. to my editor next week. Well, great. Well, you're always coming out with something that I, I need, so I'm glad. <laughs> well, hopefully one of them will fly and you'll get to talk to me again. Right, Joyce. I haven't seen you in a long time. I know, Anne. Well, it's been fun to talk with you about We were just book. talking about uh, uh, Kathleen Blake. Uh, uh-huh. with, what, did you see she was talking about how brilliantly you mentor, you mentor people? Well, she's sensational. Isn't she's she a really? wonderful cook and so smart. So yes, I'm she, very proud of her. Yeah, she really is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Well, thank you for taking the time. I know you have another appointment and need to dash off. Lovely, lovely to talk to you. Okay. Put up some preserves. Have fun. Yes. It's called Jam Session by Joyce Goldstein, and I think that it's giving me the confidence to try these. Especially, Good. I'll, I'll start with the Asian pears. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Joyce. You're welcome, Anne. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. I wonder if Joyce serves her jams on sourdough bread. <laughs> there, there's a there's a sneaky entry to uh, to our next guest. I want to go to this school, Vanessa right. Kimball School. She she makes it sound like it's well. She walks you through every step, so she makes it sound like I could actually make this world class bread. And I guess you know we have an invitation to the school. We ought to take her up on that we and learn do. how to make it. Yes, right. Anyway, Anyhow, here, here, here's the here's the story of Sourdough School. Vanessa Kimball, um, you 
have a remarkable book out called The Sourdough School, subtitled The Groundbreaking Guide to Making Gut-Friendly Bread. Uh, I'm a, a fan of gut-friendly everything, by the way. <laughs> I think it's very important. Um, but this book, um, it, it expands the a whole concept of sourdough bread um, from just being a type of bread that a lot of us associated with uh, San Francisco, but you say it goes way back. You could tell us about that. Um, you you expand on its um, therapeutic benefit to gut health, and also you give us recipes for interesting variations on um, well, the, the, the different types, the different flavors, the different compositions of these breads. It's a course and in itself, and in fact, you do teach a course, do you not? I do. I've been teaching for almost a decade in the UK. Um, I have uh, international students. In fact, I had two students from the US last week uh, who were here. Um, and Sourdough is actually, yes, it, it, it's, it's very well known for being uh, the, the, the San Francisco bread. But we've actually fermented our bread for millennia. In fact, we only stopped fermenting our bread in this way about 120 years ago. It's amazing. Um, I never knew that, really. The sourdough itself is a culture. You keep it as a domestic baker, often in a pot. And you have to feed it. So some people think of it almost like a Tamagotchi-type type sort of toy. You have to keep <laughs> it nourished and look after it. And some people name them. But what's really important in there is that you have got a wild yeast and lactic acid bacteria. Now, these lactic acid bacteria are the same bacteria that you find in uh, cheese making that kind of all the other fermentation sauerkraut but what's incredible about these bacteria is they're also very similar they're also the kind of bacteria you find in your gut inside your gut and we all each and every one of us has something called a gut microbiome right and that is our center of our immune system it digests our food for us it gives us certain vitamins, and in many ways, it's, it's about the engine that runs us. Uh, Hippocrates said that, you know, that, that, that health starts in the gut, and he wasn't wrong. Now, you, so, you, you have a reason for being interested in this. Can you tell our listeners your experience with bread in, well, when you were in... What, in what actually happened was... As, for me personally, I was a baker who trained, and I stopped being able to digest normal bread. Just and like that. Huh? I'd always made. Sorry. Just like that. That must have been really awkward. Huh? No, I, I actually had a. I actually had in the end we counted up fifty-seven uh, lots of antibiotics, nine different kinds, and what actually happened was my gut microbiome was massively reduced down to about two out of thousands. And this set up a catalogue of digestive issues accumulating in me having to give up being a baker. Um, That's not too good, huh? (laughs) No, it was pretty heartbreaking. And trying to bake normal, fast fermented bread and carry on baking was like trying to ask someone to be a vegetarian butcher. It just wasn't working for me. (laughs) 
It was a long, long time ago. It was, you know, it was in the days where there was no such thing as a gluten-free market. I mean, if you didn't eat bread, people looked at you as if you were a little crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I stopped being able to digest bread and I had to give my career up. And I accidentally went back to the bakery where I started baking sourdough when I was a little girl. And I caved. The, 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 The baker gave me this warm French niche. Very similar to what you would have at Tartine Bakery in San Francisco. And I just, oh, I, I caved and I devoured a lot. And I thought I was going to be desperately ill. And I waited and waited to ruin the holiday, really, with the most horrendous digestive issues. And, and it didn't happen. And I was 27 at the time. And, of course, I wanted to know why. And so I called the doctors and I said, why can I eat this bread? And then I went back home and I tried normal bread and oh, I was so ill. I was just, I was in bed for three days. I'm not going to tell you what happened because it's just not that romantic to tell you on the radio. But but basically your doctors understood because that, I mean, it took a long time for the medical profession to catch up. No, the doctors in 20 years ago didn't understand. No. And so at 27, I kind of made it, almost 20 years ago, I kind of made it my life's mission to learn and understand why sourdough is more digestible, why is it more nutritious, and why does it nurture us? What is it about sourdough and that fermentation process that creates bread that isn't just digestible, but it's nourishing and easy on the body? And so that's what um, that's what I do. I teach and explain why and how the fermentation of bread is an absolute game changer when it comes to to eating bread. And so many people don't really... So gluten gets bashed about like it's the fall guy for everything, and yet there are so many other things from industrial bread that are so wrong, uh, including enzymes and emulsifiers and ingredients that are just we're just not supposed to eat. Uh, and often for people who have IBS, who get bloated, it isn't the gluten at all. It's something called FODMAPs, which are sugars um, that make people bloated. So in the majority of cases, fermentation and making your own sourdough um, alleviates almost all of these aspects that make people believe they have a gluten issue. Now, the school that you operate... Are, are yes. you are you teaching professional bakers or or are you teaching uh, people who just decided they wanted to know more about sourdough? Peter, I don't teach anyone <laughs> at all. Anyone who shows the remotest bit of interest, I will talk to. Um, from professional bakers through to nutritionists, to gastroenterologists, doctors, uh, I have the widest range of students possible from professional bakers all the way through to some of the UK's leading medical professionals come here to learn about sourdough. Now what's sweetheart, what's what's that other bread the no no need? Oh no does, need does, does no need fit in here anywhere or Yeah, I mean we teach a no need technique here. Um, it's it's a very easy bread. It's not about how much effort you put in but how much thought you put in. And really, if you understand the process, the actual total time spent making a loaf is probably not more than 15 minutes. But it's spread across two days. 
And that's what confuses people, because they're like, oh, it takes a really long time. You're like, no, you just have to spread out the process over two days, which makes it seem like a long time, but it's actually very easy. Well, some people actually do a a longer fermentum. We have a, a, a bread and pizza maker in town, he's really, I mean, his bread is out of this world, so is his pizza. Um, but it, it's its longer than two days that he ferments it. That, that's fantastic. I mean, frankly, I'd be the first one in the queue there. Um, I know. <laughs> because effectively, the longer and slower that fermentation, the more time those microbes have got to break down the flour. You know, you, you talk about, um, Vanessa, you talk about the romance of this starter and capturing your wild yeast and so forth. And I find that it's, it's become a, a pressing issue for almost everybody I know who bakes or cooks. Yes, I what, mean, it's, it's... Tell us about why it's, it's, it's so popular now and what's the romance involved and... There's are mysterious things going on, right? Uh, I guess possibly because uh, the, the lactic acid bacteria are actually symbiotic uh, with ourselves. There are bacteria in the soil. Uh, there are bacteria that come onto the plant and then actually make it into the sourdough starter. And they pre-digest the wheat for us. And that then in turn facilitates more kind of bioavailability of minerals and vitamins into our, which feeds our microbes in our own gut. So it's like, there's almost a circle there. It's almost a, 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 almost a beautiful complete circle of how we ourselves are related back to the earth and the planet. Yeah, you mentioned you know, that in your book and I had never thought of that before. Um, I, I actually thought that the, um, that the yeast was in the air. I didn't realize that it starts with the earth and, and form a circle. You're actually correct. The yeast is in the air, but the lactic acid bacteria are part of the biome, and they're part of the biome of the planet, but they're also part of our own individual microbiome. The yeast, however, you can actually go and see the yeast. If you pick up some grapes, you'll see Saccharomyces cerevisiae on the grapes, Right. They are that is uh, very visible, but obviously there are lots and lots of different kinds of yeast that actually um, uh, take could take hold in 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 the, in the starter. And there's this symbiotic relationship between the yeast and the lactic acid bacteria. And essentially, what they do is they eat slightly different foods within the the that that mix in that 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 wet sort of sloppy culture of flour and water. They kind of share the food sources. And so we were talking about San Francisco earlier, so a very well-known sourdough lactic acid bacteria, San Francisco, which of course was discovered, um, I think, in the early 1971 by a team uh, in in, uh, San Francisco. And they found it had a lovely symbiotic relationship with Candida milleri, which was a particular yeast that doesn't uh, eat maltose, it's maltose negative. And that symbiotic relationship was one of the things that created this very classical tang. Because the Candida milleri doesn't eat the extra maltose, it meant that the, the lactic acid bacteria had a kind of a party, they kicked out more, more, more acid, 
making that sourdough classically much more tangy, for example, than the French uh, bread, which is much more classically white and, and, and lighter. Um, so a French sourdough, often the French use an ambient method, certainly when I trained when I was in my teens, we were using an ambient method, which gave a lighter, lactic, more milky kind of flavor, whereas a San Francisco that had a different kind of setup with a sourdough starter and a retarded method, which uh, is fermented overnight, and created that classic uh, tang, which is actually more digestible. Uh, the, 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 the more sort of acidic it is, and, and, it, and to me, it tastes better. So, um, so that's kind of the, the the reason that the sourdough starter is so magical because it determines the taste and the flavour, and ultimately the digestibility as well. You know, the, uh, reading your book, though, um, uh, there's so many aspects to this. There's so many places where you can go wrong if you don't know what you're doing. I mean, how do you know where to start with all this? I'm guessing the answer is just outside Northampton. <laughs> no, the answer is every time you bake, you learn something. The more you bake, the better you get. You're not just going to wake up one morning in bed randomly, get out of bed and go, hey, you know what, I bake really great sourdough. You have to practice. It's really simple. No one wakes up being able to play the clarinet. You know, you look at, look at the greatest pianists on the planet. They didn't wake up one morning being able to play, you know, a sonata, you know, uh, you, know uh, you know, an incredible sort of piano concerto. You have to practice. And there's the fun. When it goes wrong, you still eat it. It's still delicious. And no matter what you bake at home, no matter how bad you think your sourdough is, it's going to be amazing. Because you created it, you're nurturing a microbial life and fermenting this beautiful ingredient to make bread for the people you love and to share it. That's the joy. It doesn't really matter how big your holes are. It doesn't matter what comes out of the oven. It's that connection between your mind that has to think, your heart that just oh, loves it, and your hands that, 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 that create something. It's, it's amazing it's, um, it's just incredible i can't tell you yeah well that's how. why i i get turned off with this no need <laughs> this no need bread thing because i like actually with my hands in it and kneading yeah, yeah. well it's, it's it's the mixing i actually i, I mix i like the mixing yeah. <laughs> well, you, just listening to me i'm absolutely i love it it's just the most beautiful thing to create it really is it's just gorgeous well, you know, you start thinking of all these little, um, these little creatures, your little gut uh-huh. things. I mean, it's like yeah. having a pet. You have sections on how to refresh your starter and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when and how. And I've read uh, from bakers that, um, they got carried away with some other project and then they had to revive their starter. Like, how did the starter survive? I get lost. I get totally lost, Vanessa. Well, a very simple way of thinking about it is is you feed it, uh, you feed it regularly once a week. When it reaches its peak, you put it back in the fridge until the next time. You throw some flour and water in a bowl and you mix it. You leave it, you shape it, you chuck it 
in, in, in a baton or a tin, you leave it some more and then you bake it. Okay, in a nutshell. That's it. And you have uh, <laughs> sweet breads too. So when people who have sweet t- teeth or tooth yeah. <laughs> would, I mean, you yeah. have a, a, a chocolate starter. I never even heard of a chocolate starter. This is really amazing. What's really interesting, I spent a lot of time with a New Yorker, an American uh, called Mott Green, who founded the Grenada Chocolate Company. Very sadly, he was his close friend and he passed away. Oh. And that chocolate starter starter came from this incredible chocolate that he, uh, a zero carbon chocolate from Grenada, and it was the last bar of chocolate. And it was sitting on the shelf and I was remembering how he was explaining about the lactic acid bacteria fermenting the cocoa beans. And it became this sort of uh, chocolate bar that was too... I couldn't eat it. I was so sad and upset at losing my friend. But she just sat there going out of date. And in the end, I just suddenly thought, do you know what? I can bring this back to life. It's lactic acid bacteria that ferment chocolate. And I started looking into it and realizing that that chocolate is the same fermentation process. It is, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And it's got that real bitter sweetness for it. So every time I bake using my chocolate sado starter, I remember my gorgeous friend who made the chocolate. It was a better way to use the chocolate bar. (laughs) I I used to love watching when my mother was baking bread, watching it um, proof and expand. That was, (laughs) I loved that. Now, I'd love You've been sitting there a long while with a Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Now, you, now you, men- you mentioned another friend too, Richard Richard Hart. Tell us. Yes, he, Richard. He yeah. said he said he's the world's best baker. So you better t- better tell our audience a little bit about him. <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry, I'm giggling. I'm, it's all right. I'm, yes. <laughs> I like and, giggles. Uh, he is. That's the short version. He was a uh, head baker at Tartine. Uh, we met uh, about three years ago when I was there, and he, he blew my brains out. You know, what he does with flour and water is something that is like watching an artist create something. And he's got this magical way of, of doing something in a way that I suppose if you watch a ballerina dance, or you watch a, um, a jockey race a horse. He does this bread with the, with the most grace and beauty that you can imagine. Uh, and it's phenomenal bread. He coaxes the flavors out of the, the flour and creates these kind of beautiful, creamy, voluptuous, incredible-looking burnished loaves that you just can't help eating. I mean, they are amazing. But he's and in he's, Den- he's in Copenhagen. How in the world yeah, can everybody yeah. get this sample, his bread? <laughs> <laughs> you have to visit him. He's Open Heart Bakery uh, in conjunction with Wendy Red Zeppelin, who is a very, very uh, renowned chef. Um, and I think Rich has got this incredible team there behind him, just really pushing boundaries that... He's also incredibly humble. He's got this real down-to-earthness about him. And the thing that I like most about him is the fact that he is absolutely on the same page as me, which is everyone has a right to great bread. It's like air. It's like fresh air and clean water. People should have nourishing, good bread. It's just a basic right. And, and we share that kind of philosophy 
of sharing the knowledge, of sharing, there's no secrets with bakers. We can't wait to tell you how we did something because we would love to see you enjoying and doing the same thing. So he's a very generous and lovely, kind, wonderful man. And if you can get to Copenhagen and try his bread, it's out of this world. It really is. That sounds well, it. Well, you've got a couple of other, you've got a couple of other choices too. You can always buy Vanessa Kimball's, Kimball's book, The Sourdough School, or you or you can sign up for one of an innumerable number of classes at the Sourdough no, School, just into, just outside Northampton. Sorry, I didn't hear. I can let you into a little secret. Go ahead. Okay, in two weeks' time, we're launching. Um, a campaign which is going to allow people to invest in, in me creating all my classes as, as film tutorials. Oh, and nice. <laughs> so I'm going to be able to take the teachings from the book onto films, and that is going to enable a much wider audience for much to, to effectively come oh. into the Saturday school. But That's the way I'd go, Vanessa. You must know. <laughs> Do, do yeah, it would be amazing. Vanessa, have you ever yes. have you ever heard of an Irish chef called Darina Allen? Oh yeah, yeah. of course, I of say, course. I, yeah. I, I think the two of you would certainly get along. <laughs> although, although if I was in the same room, I wouldn't get a word in edgeways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to see. Is Darina going to be? At, um, we're going to be in in um, Gla- um, um, Galway. Uh, next week mm-hmm. for the uh, food on the edge, yeah. No, I don't, I don't think she's going to be there. Not, not that I no, know. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be there. But what I will tell you, which is a huge compliment, I have a friend uh, who is called Diana Henry. You may oh, have I know heard Diana. She's okay. The, so Diana, yes. She's on the program. Yes. Yes. So Diana um, came up here to, to the Saturday School and told me. That this is a mini Ballymolo. <laughs> oh, okay. The well, new Ballymolo. Well, that's that, that, interesting. That, that, that's that's one hell of a compliment. If that is. I, I say I took that to be the biggest compliment of my life. Although I have never yet been over to Ballymolo, I'm dying to go. I'm sure I will find a way to get there. You, you, oh, it's you, wonderful. You, you have to go. There's no question. You have to go. <laughs> and and it, the funny, the funny, the funny thing is when we went there for the first time. By the time we got to mile 200 on the way from Dublin to Balamaloo, I asked myself, although it was silently because Anne was sitting next to me, anxious to go, I said, why are we doing this? Why are we driving, why are we driving 250 miles? And then, and then when I got there, I understood why and why everyone needs to make the same pilgrimage. So, so you need to do that. But if you're a bread lover listeners, you have a pilgrimage to make. Yeah, we have to come visit you, to, Vanessa. Well, we we don't eat all that much bread. <laughs> well, if it's good bread, I'll eat it. I love okay. Bread. So, Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us on the menu today. Much success with your your project. I mean, let us know how that goes. I must I must say that you two sound like the most gorgeous, gorgeous couple. And, oh you know, <laughs> you've just got that just of, oh, I I love to come and hang out with you. Yeah, well, oh, you, can, you can do you <laughs> can do that too. You can do that, but probably better if we come and hang out with you because you have things to teach us. <laughs> so. I'm sure I can learn plenty from you as well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really humbled by the fact that you've taken the time to interview me. Thank you very much.
Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Big, bold, vegetarian food. Hoo-hoo. Rich Harris, uh, your latest book is Root and Leaf. And um, you're not even a vegetarian, though, are you? I'm, no, I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm, I'm increasingly eating less meat. Or, and the, the meat and fish I do eat tends to be of better quality and you know, making sure I eat sustainable and eat local. But I think that vegetables are, are on and up, I think, and, and it's an exciting sort of medium to cook in. Um, and so I, I wanted to write a book about vegetables written from the point of view of somebody who's not a vegetarian um, so that it was me just kind of demonstrating how they can be exciting and how they can kind of take center stage without, you know, kind of, without missing the meat, I guess. Right. You live outside of London um, in the Maidenhead, you said, but you travel yeah. back and forth a lot. You do a lot of, of behind-the-scenes uh, cookery stuff, don't you? Yeah, so for about 10 years now, I've worked uh, behind the scenes on lots of different food TV shows, um, some feature films, advertising, food styling for books and magazines. Um, so I've, I've kind of covered a, a wide range of cooking styles, working with some you know, amazing chefs. Um, and you just, you just can't help sort of learn by osmosis, really. You sort of just pick up things as you go. Um, so... That's been my kind of background for a while, and then recently started getting into more presenting and writing books, um, and that's been great because it's allowed me to cook the food that I like to cook and really seeing about my kind of style of, of cooking um, rather than doing it for other people, which is which is still great, and that's I enjoy that. But actually, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of shout about my own stuff is good. Well, you have your book is beautifully organized with colors coded and everything. Um, but the chapters are things like morning, nibbles, starters and light bites, main sides, leaves and big salads, pickled and fermented, which is, I, I love that chapter, sweets. Oh, thank you. Yeah, um, and then some basics and so forth. You, you, your recipes, um, you favor, you said if you were actually a, a real vegetarian, you would... Uh, live in northern India, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, mean, I just think it's one of the places I visited that I I think we'd been there for about five days, my, my wife and I, and just kind of had this realisation we hadn't had any meat or fish whatsoever. And that was one of those places where, you know, you really don't miss the meat. And they are just masters of textures and flavours and really bringing, you know, all, all the flavours out of vegetables. Um, and, and spicing, I think, just works to oh, that advantage. Yeah, we've really had so yeah. many, so many um, cookbooks about um, Indian, new Indian food. I learned, for example, that India is the uh, diabetes capital of the world. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. We, should, we, re- we, really, should, we really shouldn't spread that around. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, though, if you've, if you've ever had Indian dessert, then... That wouldn't be surprising at all because, <laughs> whilst they're really big on their spice and their big flavors, their sweets are so, so sweet. I mean, uh-huh. it's kind of sugar on top of sugar. And it, it's great to, I think, to a Western palate, 
I loved a small bit, you know, kind of a nibble. <laughs> but I, you know, one one bite and you're done. But um, they certainly have a sweet tooth in India. Now, yeah, well, I now, think it's more the rice, is you know, the carbs and now, the breads and yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of carbs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, when when Anne was living in Philadelphia, her neighbour was Irish, and her her neighbour declared Anne a, a, an Irish person. I, yeah. What, what, what was that what you that. used? Because, because she liked potatoes so much. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I can yeah, remember no. being in a, an Indian restaurant in, in New York City. It was one of those Bon Appetit parties for the Beard Awards. And there was a chef from Houston who was one of the people who was cooking, and she cooked the most divine, absolutely divine potatoes. Yeah. I, yeah, it's really, like potatoes, such a yeah. humble ingredient, but probably one of the most versatile things we've got. And you have yeah. a couple you have a couple of you have a couple of great recipes in your book. For potatoes. Oh, yeah, I, I do like to cook them quite a bit. Um my wife is not a huge fan, so I tend to have to test these ones on my own. Um, but the things like the, the kimchi bravas in the book, um I it's that's a really good potato dish and it's a really kind of moreish scrape the bottom of the bowl type thing. Um and that again it's just you know it's just based around potato and it's it's a riff on a classic Spanish dish, but then I love my Korean flavours as well, and, and those kind of smoky, tomatoey kind of flavours all work together. So it's sort of, yeah, a bit of a play on that. But I do, yeah, do love a potato. <laughs> well, you know that you you have all these flavours, and, and this, uh, the recipes are very high flavour. Um, but uh, and you, you depend though an awful lot on. Um, Seasonings, uh, spicings, um, oils like chili oil, and so that I mean the, the recipes have quite a long, quite a long list of ingredients for each of these. Yeah, so so it's quite. I'm trying to mix it up so there's somewhere you end up kind of drawing on your store cupboard quite a bit. So there will be quite a few spices and bits and pieces in there, but. I try not to include too many ingredients that you've got to make a special trip out for. I mean, there will be the odd thing like kimchi and gochujang and stuff like that. You happen to have a Korean store near you. Um, but I've, you know, I, I tend to have a fairly big spice cupboard at home. And I think used properly, they, you know, they can be really wonderful additions to dishes. Um, but then I always try and bring it back to sort of making the vegetable the star of the show. So the, um, there's a, pumpkin recipe there um which has a miso glaze and kind of crispy shallots right yeah and it's it you've got this kind of lovely miso caramelly dressing and these crispy shallots and garlic but the flavor that sings through is this roast pumpkin and it just kind of the sweetness of everything works really well and actually that that one was going to be more of a side dish but then actually it, you can eat it just as a whole you know as a whole main course but then equally the dishes you know i'm not a vegetarian so I see that dish as a great main course if you happen to be vegetarian, or it goes beautifully with roast pork or roast chicken, something with a bit of crispy skin. Um, so it's, you know, a lot of households these days aren't solely vegetarian or solely meat eaters. You get a lot of kind of mixed households where, you know, you've got a vegetarian dad and meat, pescatarian mum, and some of the kids eat different things. So actually you can kind of use these as a basis for a family meal and then, People can add their own bits to them as well. It's hard to tell what anybody's going to eat anymore. I mean, we stopped having many dinner parties just because of that. I mean, we had uh, just another couple over for dinner uh, last week, and I don't know. We we must have. I don't know how we got this menu. 
but he he only liked one thing that I served, which was steak. <laughs> so, so, so he had a plate of plate of cubes of steak and, r- and lots of red wine. Yeah, and I, guess, I, guess he was, I guess he was happy. We were a little pissed off because we went to a lot of trouble to, yeah, make, I other mean, di- yeah, to make other dishes. We did a, a wonderful a dish of cauliflower with white beans and capers. Oh wow. It was good. Oh, that sounds really nice. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. Not but only that, we ate them for a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, didn't but like, he didn't like cauliflower. <laughs> oh, but then that, that to me is where, for example, you know, vegetables kind of, they can actually be the better part of the meal because I was, I was talking to friends about this and when, you know, a Sunday roast is a big thing in the UK and everyone has a, you know, roast beef or roast chicken. And we were talking, uh, amongst friends and people who work in food as well and say, you know, I'm, great way of doing roast chicken and they, they get the crispy skin and everything's perfect and then I kind of say well what about the veg and they're like oh yeah just do some, do some veggies on the side and I say well if you know how to make really good roast chicken and you've got that recipe nailed then forget about that because you know that it's going to be really good and so rather than I kind of want people going around someone's house for Sunday lunch and walking away and going oh yeah he does good chicken but that cauliflower was amazing or that cabbage we had was incredible and actually kind of flipping the table slightly and people, people talking about the vegetables being the exciting bit. Because if you kind of have the meat as good as given, and that's off to one side, then actually you can be, you can be a lot more bold with the vegetable side dishes and kind of try and, you know, try and overtake them slightly. Right. You like kimchi. But you I don't do. Make, I love kimchi. But you don't make your own, do you? I do. Yeah, I do, do make you? my own. Um, Is I, that in I, it? Yeah, there's, there's a recipe for white kimchi in that book, which is the kind of chili free one. More yeah, of tell me about kimchi. that. White, white. I didn't know what white ch- kimchi was going to be. It's it's basically uh, normal red kim- kimchi that everyone kind of knows more commonly. Um, but I mean, there's so many. If you kind of scratch the surface in Korean cooking, there's so many different types of kimchi. Um, but the the one that most people know is the the uh, the cabbage kimchi, which is you know got loads of chili in it, right. and this is. Um, it's similar but without the chili so it doesn't have any spice in there and it's just kind of it's really fragrant and it's really light and it's just kind of a nice store cup of thing to have um but you can buy really good kimchi so i never kind of insist on it for my recipes but um it's it's one of those things i love i mean kimchi in a grilled cheese sandwich is is amazing that's what i've Um, I've been coming across that a lot actually interesting yeah or kimchi and cheese it's um so a, f- a friend of mine I work with is um, very closely in my industry in TV in the UK, um, a guy called Rob, and he's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cook, and he's, he's half Korean. Um, he kind of really got me hooked on all things Korean, yeah. um, particularly gochujang and denjang. And, um, we have that in the refrigerator. How many people do you know have that in the refrigerator? <laughs> not, yeah, not everybody. I'd, I would like to see more people have it. But it's one of those things, you buy one tub of it, and it lasts. You know, it can last you a long time. We actually have two jars. One, oh, really? Yeah. One, one, one spicier than the other one. How yeah. about the... Um, but they're, tra- they're trade samples. Yeah. They, <laughs> uh, we have something that lasts longer than that was... Our famous um, carrot pickle. Oh, the carrot pickle. Oh, that had God. have been 25 years old before we threw it out. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I, I actually th- I, I threw it out when we changed refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but no, I, 
I think I think we I think I used it for like about twenty five years. It, 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 yeah. it was a big it was a big jar. Yeah, it's great stuff. I mean, I, yeah, I think those things, the older and funkier they are, the better. You know, it's kind of it's um, yeah. I I I make um like an elderflower homemade elderflower champagne type drink every time because we have a lot of elderflower trees around near where we are. Oh yeah, and um, and my my grandfather used to make it. We always had it as kids and. I didn't realize it was slightly alcoholic, um, but I I made some this year, and um, I I just I think whether I kind of slightly overdid it on the yeast, but I had several explosions going off every every sort of couple of days. There'd just be a huge boom coming off from the shed at the end of the garden or in a storage container down the side of my house. It's <laughs> enormous <laughs> explosion, um, but somehow some of them have lasted a couple of years. And I opened some yesterday, and it was um it's it's quite alcoholic now after a couple of years so things, <laughs> things do get better with age it's fine <laughs> maybe I guess no, that's, that's yeah. what we keep on saying to each other you know yeah I, absolutely well you know I, when I'm reading this book I mean I think that a, a lot of the um, the dishes have as I said very long list of ingredients even if they're things that aren't um, hard to get there are lots of it and I don't think that um, that um, Indian food actually is that simple and easy to make. But um, I wanted to ask you, we, we just got two books um, on how to make Indian food using the Instapot. Oh, okay, yes. And yes. We, we also got one on how to do French food with the Instapot instead of long braises. What do you think about the Instapot? I, I think they're really good. I don't actually, I don't own one. I have used them a few times. Um, and they're brilliant. They are particularly, I think if you kind of, if you have a fairly busy schedule and you're kind of running around all the time, they are, they are great for that, just kind of throwing everything in. And they, they cook things really, really nicely. Um, so yeah, look, certainly for, as I say, Indian food, if you've got a kind of a long, slow cooked curry, um, and, you know, French food, and I don't think like Italian foods. And these kind of, these cheaper cuts of, of meat and stuff that you get, you know, kind of ox cheek and shin and all that sort of stuff. When you're cooking stuff really slowly and you want those big, deep flavors from those slow cuts. So for a nice Italian ragu or something to go with pasta, I think they're, they're amazing bits of kit. I, I, um, like, I, liked your, I, I liked your pasta with truffles. Yeah, that was Oh, the pasta with truffles, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I've, I've kind of went through a bit of a phase of being a little bit obsessed with truffles because we... We go to Italy every summer, um, and I've actually just come back from a shoot there um, last week. But um, we we always go as a family, and I managed to find a place in Tuscany once, and it was selling you know selling amazing truffles, but for a fraction of the cost they pay in the UK. So I just I came back with a huge handfuls of truffles, fresh truffles, mm-hmm. and then just go. kind of yeah, and then just grating them over you know scrambled eggs or pasta. They're yeah, they're amazing. Uh, one, um, one, one of our trips to Italy, we were in Aquilania, which is one of the truffle oh, centres of Italy. That's the place I went to. You went that's to Aquilania. Exactly, yeah. Did you? Yeah, it was Aquilania. We were. I'd read about it, and we were driving back from somewhere in Tuscany, um, and we. I can't remember. We'd been out for a day, and I heard. I had it as a, you know on my phone saying, "Oh, this week we happened to go," and we just drove through it by chance, and I just. And then I saw the sign saying, "Oh, home of the truffles." And we just kind of screeched to a stop, and I was like, right, get out of the car, we've got to find truffles. <laughs> and we found this, um, someone had said that they were a truffle vendor on the gate of their house, and 
it was just somebody's house and we went into their garage and they had a fridge weighing scales the, the full kind of it feels like you're kind of dealing with a, a shady backstreet dealer at times but um, <laughs> um it is like were, that actually yeah let me let, yeah. Let, us, let us tell you a little bit of a story did, did you yeah. do you remember first of all the tradesman you dealt with was it senor marini <laughs> uh it could well have been I could, no it, actually it was, it was a lady so i can't remember her name but, yeah. okay. it, it could have been senor marini's wife you never know yeah well we we went to aqualania with the with the recommendation from the people we, whose place we were staying at and they called senor marini and so he was ex- so he would be expecting us when we arrived so that he would know that we were planning to do an interview. So we arrived, we saw a sign on the on the wall that said this was Marini Truffles. So we went in and we introduced ourselves and they looked a little puzzled. But but we didn't we didn't twig. So it turned out we had a okay. we had a long conversation. There were faxes coming in in droves, people mostly from the United States ordering truffles. And uh Mr Marini arranged lunch for us which included pasta with truffles freshly grated we got back to the person where we were staying and they said what what happened to you you didn't go see mr marini but we said but we did but we did <laughs> we, we we had the wrong senior marini and and the oh, no. <laughs> Well, that, not only that, the, the other brothers, one was his brother. He and the brothers hate each other. They're both Senor Marini. <laughs> so we, oh, wow. So we, we, we were captured by the wrong Senor Marini. But, but, Amazing. But he, he gave us some wonderful Product, porci- yeah. porcini and truffle pr- uh, preserve product, products in oh, jars, yeah, which, little, were ju- the paste stuff. Yeah. which was just we, delicious. Um, we, we always load up on that and bring it back to the UK because you can. It's really nice to spread on toast and it's yeah, uh-huh. delicious stuff. Yeah, well, I, I was came uh, I was came home with us too. <laughs> yeah, I, that's amazing though that both brothers deal in truffle and you were kind of <laughs> <laughs> lucky enough. I don't. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else to do in Aquilania. <laughs> no, it's very much. It's very much a truffle truffle haven, isn't it? So, it is. Yeah, it's a cutthroat it business. It really is. I mean, we've even had uh, bad dealings with truffle producers in Australia. You know. Oh I mean, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. They lie. <laughs> they make up stories, and they they're hide right, what they do, good. and they're secretive. Yeah, they're a shady bunch, aren't they? Yeah, yeah they are. Um, I, I guess I can see why, because it's quite a secretive business and, you know, nobody wants to know where to get them from and that sort of thing. But I have a, um, a truffle guy in the UK who's brilliant and he, he supplies lots of amazing restaurants. But um, he, if I need something in London, particularly for a TV show, he comes and meets me at, like, around the back of the TV studio on a motorbike <laughs> and he opens up the back of the bike and he's got truffles and a little mini scales. <laughs> and it, it feels like it feels a lot more shady than it is and I, I'm handing over wads of cash for this little bag <laughs> of a guy with scales it's like, and whenever security see me I'm like it's not what it looks like it's it's, it's truffle <laughs> um, well, but, um, but yeah it's, but I kind of that's kind of why I like truffles as well it's not just, I mean the flavour's obviously amazing but there's something about the mystique of them and oh, that yeah. you can't just buy them from a shop you've got to you got to kind of know someone, or you you need to you know need to be in the right place at the right time, sort of thing, and then that makes them all the more special. I think. Oh, yeah. Well, we 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 met the guy, Doctor Nick. I forget his last name now, mm. Malieri or something like that, who was tasked with the Australian CSRI with trying to figure out how to grow truffles in Australia, 
and he and he okay. was and he was successful, and he accounts for, he accounts for something like eighty percent of the south of the hem, the southern hemisphere truffle production. And I don't oh, know wow. I don't know the name of his company, but it's on a website with um, there's a picture there's a picture, picture of him. Yeah. I but I don't yeah, I want to check him out. I mean, to be honest, some of the best truffles I've ever had have been the Australian summer black truffle. Yeah, uh, I may well have had hit ones. Yeah, if you yeah, if, well, if, you, one, if uh, you track down truffles in Pemberton, P E M B E R T O N, that that okay. sh- that, sh- that should get you close because that's where they are. And, I- and if not, uh, drop us drop us a note. And uh, we'll renew. We'll see, if yeah. I, we'll see if we can find the information. It's back from. Oh, it's 15 years ago. Yeah, we so were there. So okay. If not, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll head to Australia with a uh, trusty Labrador and see what I can find. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Rich Harris, I wish you a lot of luck with this book or success. You don't need luck. The book is good, but uh, a lot of success. It's called Root and Leaf, and uh, it's. Not it's vegetarian food, but it's not only for vegetarians. It's probably the kind of food that we all should be eating about right now, anyhow. Um, yeah, and, and I think another recipe I'll try to try at some point. It looks so tempting is your cauliflower cheese, which is really <laughs> over the top. Oh, thanks. oh it's, it's completely ridiculous that one, but it's delicious. Yeah. So it's, well, that's it's, what yeah, I think. If you like cauliflower, yeah. I, 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 I like a guy who puts his frittata under the broiler to finish it off. Yes. <laughs> oh, which yeah. Is you've it? got to get a bit of colour on it. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, you have to get you have to get it from being so sloppy. Yes, yes, but it's got to be. Yeah, it's kind of that just right where it's still a bit loose in the middle, but not you know, it's not that, quite set. That's that, why. Yeah. I'm, 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 no, I'm no, glad. No. I'm glad you and I do it the same way. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Well, Rich, you sound like you're having a lot of fun and a good life and continue on. Uh, I guess it's, um, you just take the kids with you, do you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, That's what we did too. Are, yeah, they, no, they, they, they love to travel and they, they eat everything. And it's, um, it's one of those slightly embarrassing things every now and again. You'll be in a supermarket in the UK and they'll say, my three-year-old particularly, he eats everything. And, we walked past the olives counter in the supermarket, and he said, "Oh, Daddy, can I? Um, can we have some olives for at home?" And I said, "No, we've got we've got olives at home." He went, "Daddy, we've only got black olives, not green olives." He's <laughs> 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 like, "Really? Oh, I've ruined him. He's so spoiled." But he just he just like, he loves big flavors, olives and cheese, capers, chili, that kind of thing. And he's only three, so it's a good it's a good start. Anyway, well, so. you know what? Um, he'll change, and I can't remember the name of the book about this food writer uh, and food consultant and restaurant critic who was so happy that his daughter, when she was born, ate everything, even, like, unadulterated chilies. And they changed. They changed, like, about oh. every two years. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will do. Yeah, I'll, I'll hang for those days when he used to eat clams and all sorts of stuff, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah Riz Reichel had a son who would only eat white things for most of his childhood. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, well, good talking to you, Rich. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's lovely to talk to you too. Yeah. And uh, I, I'll talk to you again with your next book. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. It was lovely to chat to you both. You too. Bye-bye. 
Boy, time flies when you're having fun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're glad, so glad you were able to join us today here at On The Menu Radio. We hope you'll join us again same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.